Well, if you'll open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14, we're going to have a meditation on the hour of his judgment is come. You know, the, whenever uh, someone prominent in our society is arraigned in the court, it always attracts a lot of attention, doesn't it, from the media, from the newspapers. I remember back in the late 90s, a famous football player's trial attracted a lot of tension, attention. I wonder what kind of publicity there would be if people knew that God was hauled into court and put on trial. You know, prophecy calls for a message that's going to rivet the attention of the four or five billions of people that are on this earth. And the phrase, dwell on the earth, implies that while a lot of common matters are going to be absorbing people's attention, there's going to be an announcement that's going to startle them, and that's going to get their attention. And you have it here in Revelation 14 and verse 6. It says, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of what? His judgment is come. That is the message that's going to rivet the whole world's attention. Now, I know that we have long thought that that judgment is our judgment, and as a result, we have had, we have looked at that as being really bad news, maybe a stern warning of being hauled into court, unless, of course, we shape up, and, of course, we tremble at such an idea of being hauled into court and accused for our sins. But the original language here, the first angel's message, allows for a different understanding. The hour of his judgment can also mean the hour when God himself is to be judged. So rather than being the accuser, rather than God being the accuser, he has become the accused in the doxy. He's been hauled into court. As a consequence, uh, anyone who's brought into court, what do they need? They need a defense, don't they? They need to mount a defense. So we want to look at how God mounts his defense. There are several interesting statements that Jesus sheds upon God's judgment that brings light on this subject. Uh, he, he, Jesus insists that his father will not serve as the judge in the final court scene. Are you aware of that? Yeah. <clears throat> the hour of his judgment is come. Well, <clears throat> I don't think it's capitalized in the New King James either. Well, it is. It's capitalized in the New King James Version. <laughs> uh, it says, Fear God and give glory to him, capital H, for the hour of his, capital H, judgment has come. <laughs> so it is in the New King James Version. Uh, so the translators understood it as being his judgment here. But in John chapter 5 and verse 22 uh, Jesus tells us that the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son because he is the Son of Man. And furthermore, Christ refuses to serve as judge to anyone who rejects him. If you look in John chapter 12 and verse 47, we are, he says this, If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So the, uh, the word is really the gospel of God's love, and that word of the gospel of God's love is the word that will judge the wicked in the end. The only people Christ will judge are those who believe in him, and the only judgment that he will render on their behalf is their acquittal. So many people have this idea that God is a vengeful deity just waiting for a chance to strike them 
with his lightning bolts of retribution for their sins. And if God is indeed like this, a judgment with him on the bench, that would certainly be a very fearful prospect. The Bible, however, describes a God and a judgment that differs startlingly from this common misconception. Number one, God is not looking for an excuse to punish us. We sometimes picture there's a loving Jesus, you know, who is standing between us and a very stern, vengeful, harsh father. But according to the Bible, the father loves us and is just as anxious for our eternal salvation as is the son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3, 16. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. So the scriptures portray the Father as not a harsh and stern one who's seeking to um, uh, avenge himself upon sinners, but it portrays him as seeking to reconcile sinners to himself. Secondly, God never planned for any of us to face the terror of being found guilty in the judgment. Aren't you so glad about that? Jesus declared that the condemnation of the judgment, which, which is eternal fire, was especially prepared for the devil and his angels. That, that you'll find there in Matthew 25 and verse 41. So if there's any human being who finds himself suffering the fate of Satan, it's not going to be because God has willed it. Those who are destroyed along with the devil and his angels will have spurned and beaten back repeated efforts by God himself to save them. Third, in what appears to be a really happy exception to Paul's statement that all are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus declares this good news in John 5, 24, uh, in the New Inter. New English Bible, it says, In very truth, anyone who gives heed to what I say and puts his trust in him who sent me has hold of eternal life and does not come up for judgment, but has already passed from death to life. And the word judgment here means the condemnation of the judgment. So the point is that God wants to exempt us from that terrible experience of facing judgment and being condemned. The fourth thing, as we've already mentioned, is that the fathers turned all judgment over to Christ, this task of judging men. As we've referred to in John 5.22, the father judges no one, it says, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. And then verse 27, it says, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Our judge, then, is Christ himself, right? Did you have, you couldn't find anyone who would be more friendly to you in court, could you, than Jesus Christ? If a human court, in a human court, the judge and all of the jury members are warm personal friends, then you could hardly wish for a more favorable chance of acquittal. Yet the Son of Man will do for us what no earthly friend can do when we are in trouble. Look at 1 John chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. It was in our Sabbath school lesson last week. 1 John chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. I write this to you so that you will not sin, it says. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father. We have an advocate with the Father. Or in other words, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And uh, <clears throat> so here it talks, tells us that Jesus is our advocate. He's also been appointed by the Father as the judge. So how can one person be both the judge and the advocate? The only answer to that is that God has put all of the odds in our favor <laughs> uh, when you think about it. And by the way, in that second verse there, it says, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Probably your Bible reads, he is the propitiation for our sins, doesn't it? 
which is an interpretation of the original word. The original word means sacrifice. He's the sacrifice for our sins. But this interpretation of propitiation leaves you with the idea that you've got an angry God <laughs> who has put his son up to assuaging his wrath by dying for the sins of human beings so that the father can calm down from his heat of wrath against sinners. That's what the word propitiation leaves you with. Well, that is an interpretation on the part of the, of the translators when the original word means sacrifice. It's a much better word. And by the way, the new Revised Standard Version translates it sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus is both the judge and the defense attorney so that he can defend us because he's already suffered the condemnation that we deserve in judgment. You know, the death that Jesus died on the cross, that was the ultimate condemnation. Sin requires carried to its ultimate degree. Sin requires an ultimate condemnation. Jesus suffered that on your behalf when he died on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him to be sin for us. So Jesus died, as you prayed, Mark, he died an eternal lost sinner, like an eternal lost sinner is going to die, forsaken by his father, because as Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So as the second Adam, Jesus uh, bore our sins and we are all in him in that sense as our corporately. Um, and if we choose to believe it, we die with him. The idea is that when Jesus died, we also died. Paul said in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Uh, when he says, I have been in the past tense, it means that when Jesus died, Paul died. Well, when Jesus died, all of us died because he was the last Adam. So any lightning bolts there might be of hot wrath that should fall on sinners, it's already fallen on Christ at the cross. And by accepting Jesus as our Savior by faith, we are identified with him. There's not the slightest reason why anyone should have to duplicate Jesus' experience of dying for sin unless that person rejects his or her identity with Christ. What Jesus did on the cross is far more than a legal maneuver to satisfy the statutory claims of the broken law. Jesus did die to establish the Ten Commandments because the wages of sin is death according to the law of God. Jesus died to uphold the law of God, the statutory claims of the broken law. But Jesus also died as our personal, so that our uh, our personal identification with him in his death might happen too. And so by faith, the believing sinner accepts that we are in Christ. We accept this divine judgment upon our sins. And we are to experience death to self in Christ. Death to self in Christ. Justice makes no further claims against Jesus, against us rather. This is why he does not come up for judgment. And everyone can have this advantage if they will accept it. And we'll say this, that anyone who chooses to disbelieve this gift is, is not punished in the lake of fire because of the sins that they have committed. Because Jesus already died for those sins on the cross. The reason they choose that punishment is because of their unbelief in the gift. And they suffer the consequences of that. The idea of being on trial is not as wild, of God being on trial, however, is not as wild as it may appear. It's no secret that the vast majority of those who dwell on earth are angry with God, right? Lots of people are angry with God. And that's a very natural thing for people to be angry with God because the Bible tells us that the carnal mind is enmity against God. 
And so they blame God for everything. They blame God for troubles, especially for the injustices of seemingly random plagues that happen upon the world at large. Um, our very legal terminology, um, acts of God describes killer earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and floods and tidal waves and natural disasters. All insurance policyholders can read about the acts of God in their policies. So that would raise the question, if God is so almighty, why doesn't he prevent uh, earthquakes from occurring? Back in the 89 earthquake here in California, uh, one local newspaper reported that there was a resident in Oakland who was just angry and irate uh, that this uh, earthquake happened and said, how could God let this terrible earthquake happen? So you see, God gets blamed. People are angry with God. Well, uh, God could act as a boss and zap uh, the unbelievers and the wicked out of existence. But God is fair and he is generous to subject himself to their accusations, to stand trial on their charges. Any other solution to the problem would be unwise, for it would uh, foment further rebellion against him. It is often been said that God won his case in court when Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. In a sense, he did win his case when Jesus died on the cross. But humanity has continued to suffer from that point onward and ever since. If God completely won the war against sin and Satan at the cross, then you have to ask the question, why does the agony continue on and on and on? Why does this great controversy continue on and on? For example, our Adventist pioneers, I don't think they could have ever dreamed of the horrors of the wars that have ensued uh, into the 19th and now the 20th, 20th and the 21st century. They could never have dreamed of our present day um, uh, cities that are plagued with uh, drugs and terrorism and pornography and greed and poverty and crime. If Christ would only come the second time, he could end all of this misery, couldn't he? And even the saints who aren't supposed to be angry with God, would raise serious questions in court if God were on trial. It might be, why does the Lord wait so long to come? Doesn't he feel for the world's woes? Why doesn't he do something? The only way that God can defend himself against a charge of indifference is to plead some circumstances that are beyond his control which has delayed his intervention. Did you get that? There is some circumstance that is beyond God's control that has delayed his return. And there is a circumstance that exists that has delayed. The problem is for him to prove this in his court case. Because... Uh, the, there, you have to remember that God is dealing not just with our world, but he's de dealing with the universe. There are more intelligent beings out there than there are just on this earth. There are angels at least, if not other intelligent beings that live on other worlds. And so this is a cosmic court case that he's having to deal with. And uh, they're, as it were, jur a jury who are looking on to see whether God can win his case or not. The world's inhabitants, the unfallen beings of the universe, even the devil and his uh, spirits, evil spirits, they need to see evidence that's convincing that just, uh, God can justify himself. So this idea of God being on trial, that is something that only, only the Bible could come up with that. You could never dream that up yourself. It comes as a revelation from God. You know, the Islamic Quran 
has no such idea of God being on trial, that Allah is on trial. Nothing in the Quran about that. You know, the Muslims, Allah requires the worshiper to prostrate himself in a mindless, blind submission to Allah's capricious will, which rides roughshod over human beings' feelings. doesn't matter how human beings feel it or how anybody else feels. God does what he wants to do, and that's it. That's the Muslim, Allah. I wonder if some Adventist could think that way about God. Could some Adventists think that way about the true God? If so, then they come much closer to the Islamic way of thinking about God. But the God of the Bible says this, come now and let us do what? Reason together. Let's use our minds. Let's think this through. Why am I being accused? God doesn't just say, I don't care what you think, I'm the parent here, and this is the way it is, period. That's not God's way of dealing with human beings. In other words, God welcomes his own trial, and he's ready to take on the questions, and he's ready to give the answers and and to meet the charges. The last thing that God wants from any human being is some kind of a mindless devotion. Paul saw that God would have to go into the court, into the dock. Here, look at it. Romans chapter 3, verse 4. Another text that God is being judged. Romans 3, verse 4. It says, referring to God, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Romans 3, verse 4. And the New English Bible says, And when the verdict, when thou art on trial. Uh, Goodspeed, another translator, says, And when your case. When your case. So, uh, another example is, Do you remember Job in the Old Testament? He made some rather bold charges against God, didn't he? Job said, uh, I'm quoting his words, God crushes me with a tempest. He multiplies my wounds without cause. Who will appoint my day in court? I'd like to get into court with God and pose some questions to it. He destroys the blameless and the wicked. In other words, the innocent as well as the wicked. If it is not he, who else could it be? For he's not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Job says, I'd just like to have my day in court with God and <laughs> make my accusations. And deep in their hearts, many sincere people just echo Job's complaints, and they would join with Job in a class action suit against the Almighty <laughs> with their complaints. So now at the very end of time comes along this first angel's message in Revelation 14. It's a very startling announcement that Job, that billions of others are going to get their day in court to confront God and cross-examine him. And he must meet these accumulated charges of the ages. And if his case can't secure the attention of earth's billions who now dwell on earthly matters, what could? If all that's important, and I want to make this point, and that is that the whole earth, according to the first angel's message, the whole earth needs to know and will know that God is on trial so that God can demonstrate the answers to these questions that every human mind is posing against God. That's the first angel's message. I don't think that the first angel has done its work yet, do you? It has more work to do. If all that is important in their own cases, people might go, you know, if we think that it's just about me in the judgment, then we might blithely go on unconcerned about our appearance in court, nonchalant, indifferent to our own personal fate. But they will sit up and take notice when God goes on trial 
they will realize that they are character witnesses in his trial. You, yes, are a character witness in God's trial, which is the greatest court case in all of history. This goes even bigger than O.J. Simpson's court case. Everybody is going to be looking at this case. Thus, an entirely new motivation is going to transcend the hitherto supreme concern that they have felt for their own personal security, the root cause of lukewarmness. Is it possible for us human beings to actually be concerned about God in his court case? Is that possible? That would be a miracle, wouldn't it? That would be a miracle. And that is a, a, a tectonic change in human attitudes that almost seems to us to be impossible to be concerned about God in his court case. But it's going to be so. This millennium right now is being ushered in as the age of me-first selfishness of both among rich and poor and high and low. Uh, <laughs> I heard someone say, this is the first time that baby boomers had to have had to really confront um, an economic depression on a world scale. And so now it shows how baby boomers handle depressions, economic depressions. <laughs> it's going on right now in the world. Uh, I don't think you would deny that we live in a very self-centered age, don't we? Very me-first age. But there has to come a change as far as God's people are concerned. The world marvels at how quickly Eastern Europe changed. You remember how the, the wall came down in Berlin back in the late 80s? I remember that wall, don't you? Maybe some of you were babies when it was up, and you don't remember that. But I thought that we would always live in a Cold War tension with the USSR and the, and the Russians and the communists, you know. And then what happened to that wall? It just suddenly came down, didn't it? Amazing. So wrong ideas can become as obsolete as communist rule in Eastern Europe did. What can make the difference is comprehending the reality of God being on trial. Concern for him will unseal springs of human devotion and service that are yet unrealized. And the good news in the first angel's everlasting gospel is therefore a lot better news than we have ever thought about. It gives every believer in Christ something all-absorbing to live for. You and me we can make a significant contribution to God's acquittal in his trial. Did you know that? We need to not enter this judgment shrinking in terror because of our own security. We can go joyfully in and honoring Jesus and God. To fear him is not to cower in dread of a confrontation with him, but to thrill with tingled delight that our individual testimony for God is going to be effective evidence in court. Only this can give glory to him. Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, the text says. God has to somehow render the poison of sin antiseptic because there are very serious charges against God that must be disposed of before the second coming of Christ can happen. And so unless these charges have been adequately answered to the full satisfaction of all the universe, uh, sin could break out again. You know, sin is, is the worst thing to stamp out than even the bubonic plague. Something has to stamp it out so that it'll never break out again in in the history of the universe, right? And what is the remedy? Jesus claims it's the gospel. 
that will stamp it out so that it will never happen again. You know, when war broke out in heaven and Satan and his angels were cast out, the loyal ones did not fully understand the issues until they saw Satan's murderous crucifixion of the Son of God. It was then that Satan was cast out of heaven. He was uprooted from their last lingering sympathy for him. Christ's apparent defeat on the cross turns out to be his glorious victory as far as the minds of heaven were concerned. Well, it should have then ended the case once and for all with a cosmic verdict in God's favor. In principle, Satan lost his case at the cross and there was cause for rejoicing, but Revelation says that there's more to the case that has yet to be settled. And you can read about it in Revelation 12 and verse 12. It says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. So he lost out as far as the beings up in the universe were concerned, but now he's wreaking as much havoc on this earth after the cross as he possibly can. So a short time for what? He knows he has a short time. In other words, he has a short time to press his final court case while it's in session. Satan entertains that he's going to have a last-ditch hope that he might yet succeed, and millions of people expect that Satan is going to win, even though Christ overcame him at the cross. There remains another battle in which God's people now need to take center stage. In Revelation 12.10 says, Our brethren overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So they are now the decisive witnesses in court. The sacrifice on, of Christ on the cross was complete in that it guaranteed complete and final victory, but that victory has yet to be realized and demonstrated in his people. So just what is the problem? Satan and millions of people are pressing the point that God's professed people are a little better than those who make no profession of devotion to the third angel's message. Satan is saying, you look at those believers in the three angels' message. They aren't any better than people out there in Babylon. And he can say, Satan can say, look at them, they're lukewarm. Even Jesus says they're lukewarm. Isn't that true? Is lukewarmness a sin? They are often worldly. They are often self-caring. Their immorality is almost as high as it is in the world. They do not demonstrate any significant higher motivation of love than do the religious people in Babylon. Any, is it any wonder that Satan has won his case? He thinks he's won his case. So every one of us is in a special sense an exhibit in God, God's great trial. We're either giving glory or we're giving shame to God. Not a one of us can evade the merciless spotlight of the cosmic television lenses. Do you remember when Joseph was faced with a sudden, alluring sexual temptation to indulgence, and he faced that circumstance under complete human privacy. He, it was as private as anybody could ever wish so that it could have been done and nobody would have known. And yet, Joseph remembered his court responsibilities with God. He said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against who? And sin against God. Genesis 39, verse 9. Now, if he had fulfilled the desires of the flesh, as 1 John tells us, instead of denying them, what would he have done as far as God is concerned? He would have brought great shame on the name of God, wouldn't he? And he would have cast a terrible vote for God's defeat. You know what? You and I are in the role of Joseph today. 
you and I are in the role of Joseph today. And the serious problem that God faces is Laodicea's continued lukewarmness 2,000 years after the cross, which tells the world and the universe that something doesn't work. We are God's professing people who believe in the gospel, that the gospel saves us from sin and not in our sins. And now here we are, well over 2,000 years after the cross, and we are in a state of lukewarmness. And what are we saying to the world? That the gospel doesn't work. So this is why so many are saying, well, the gospel is just a legal thing. And it, it, it's something that God does legally up above. Legally, he declares us justified, but we can't ever expect to overcome sin in this lifetime. That will only happen when God waves the magic wand when he comes a second time. Legally or theoretically, God's plan of salvation is, is okay because we get declared forgiven. But practically, as far as delivering us from sin, it's a failure. So is sin itself being vanquished from our hearts, where it is rooted? Suppose we kid ourselves into thinking that everything is okay, that everything is fine. Well, let's think about the alternative to this. Why is Christ so slow in coming the second time? If God's people are as ready as they ever will be, in other words, all right, they're not going to overcome sin, but they're as ready as they ever will be. So why doesn't Jesus come then? You know, what's he waiting for? If they're never going to get any better than what they are right now, then why should he delay? Here they are, they continue to sin. And Christ, as their high priest, he continues to cover for them. He pronounces a legal pronouncement up above. They're justified, they're pardoned. Well, then, Satan can charge that this has become an unfair thing. And then you think about the hundreds and the millions of Muslims. They would protest this whole Christian doctrine of vicarious substitution of Christ as completely unethical and even immoral, that God pardons and, and justifies those who continue sinning. That is immoral, unethical. God is hypocritical in doing such a thing. Satan would have, make great hay out of that, wouldn't he? And so would Muslims, because that's one of the reasons why they reject Christianity for their forensic teaching of justification. But in Revelation 3, verse 17, it says that Laodicea seems satisfied with this understanding of righteousness by faith and apparently has need of nothing, while all the while you have God in the dock in the court who must be red in the face, blushing with shame, and meanwhile, the world's misery keeps just getting worse and worse. In fact, Jesus says that the situation with the seventh and the last church, Laodicea, is so serious that it makes him so sick to his stomach that he is about to throw up. And that's what Revelation 3.16 says in the Greek. If we could see Jesus' face right now as he really is, we would not see some kind of a frozen smile like you see on the medieval painters as they portrayed the face of Christ. We would see a divine face that registers an acute pain of nausea. Have you ever been nauseous before? How can we bring healing to Jesus? How can we bring healing to him? Well, the answer is not going to be some rigid works program. And neither is it going to be some fear-oriented spiritual terrorism that we've got to straighten up and, or else face the plagues. We have heard that for years and years, too. And neither will it any help any longer to uh, anesthetize our spiritual nerve, blocking out the Holy Spirit's painful convictions that something is terribly wrong. You know what the prophet Jeremiah reproved 
the false shepherds back in his day who were going around and preaching to the people, everything's okay, all is well, all is well, when all is not well. We got preachers today who are saying everything's okay, everything's okay, when it's not okay, it's not well. You can look at it in Jeremiah 6, verse 14. The Bible says that the answer is a special message of much more abounding grace, a message that has a power built into it that delivers from the addiction of continued sin, self-centeredness, and worldliness. And rightly understood, the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. And the message of the three angels about the hour of his judgment, God's judgment, has that power that's in it to produce a people who are truly and not supposedly, and look at it in Revelation chapter 14, and let what it's really saying here sink in, because you have this sequence of three angels here, which we call the third angel's message, proclaiming the gospel and God's judgment. And then at the very conclusion of it, it tells us what these three angels' messages produce. It says in verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Those three angels actually produced that. The patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and what? They have the faith of Jesus. Those words cannot yet be pronounced on a people. They may be pronounced upon a people who are seeking to proclaim that to the world, but not as a body of believers as yet. But those three angels at that point, when they are successful in meeting the accusations against the, uh, God being on trial, and we have our say as witnesses of glorifying him, then it will be pronounced, here are they which keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. By supplying a, a complete Christ-centered motivation, the third angel's message in verity accomplishes what has never been accomplished by any generation of saints in history. All these having obtained a good testimony, Paul tells us in Hebrews, through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. A far clearer understanding of the message must come when another angel comes down from heaven having great authority so that the earth can be illuminated with his glory. Last Sabbath apparently shocked someone by... By the way, I let it all out last Sabbath. Just put the whole thing out there last Sabbath, what it's all about. So if you didn't hear it, order the CD or download it off of the Internet. But what I'm seeking to help me, I'm trying to study this, and I don't claim to have the Elijah message, but I'm studying it. I want to know it. And we believe that the Elijah message is the Laodicean message. And the Laodicean message is the sanctuary message. Did you get that? And that the third angel's message, the, the sanctuary, is the third angel's message in verity. That's justification by faith, see? And it is a message that is especially directed to a lukewarm people. It is calculated to revive them and to reform them. And it's genuine revival and reformation, which is the loud cry and can be blessed with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in terms of the latter rain. And we pray that the Lord will send us the Elijah message that we can understand it better. And I'm praying that the Lord will not send the latter rain until God's people repent. By the way, God will not send the latter rain until that does happen. This is what it means for the bride to make herself ready. If God blessed with a mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit of people who are Laodicean, he would be pronouncing his greatest blessing on a people who are completely unprepared for it and who would not recognize it. 
right? So here, what, what really shocked some folk last week was that we suggested that the whole delay in Jesus' coming, this whole 160-year delay since 1844, is because God's people are to blame. This is the reason for the extended history of humanity upon this earth, because God is waiting for his bride to make herself ready. And bless this individual's heart. You know, it's really wonderful to get instant feedback on your sermons. I, I really like instant feedback instead of people talking around behind my back. A person said to me, well, if that's the case, I would have never been born. And my whole family would never have been born. And I would not have the prospect of heavenly and eternal life. I would not have been here if Jesus, if Jesus could have come back in that generation of the 1844 message. I would never have been born, and I could never have enjoyed eternal life. And that's just the point, dear friends. In other words, the point is this. You and me, we wouldn't be here, would never have even been thought of had that generation believed, right? So it doesn't matter, you know. But to make a statement like that is a very self-centered statement, if you think about it. That God has to wait until I'm born before he can be vindicated. <laughs> you have a thought. <laughs> I know you're just bursting to say something. Well, of course, only the Father knows when the second coming is going to be. No question whatsoever about that. But the qu issue is, is God the Calvinist God who has this thing pegged on a divine clock that whether people are ready or not for him, if there's just two or three that are ready for him, he's going to come anyhow. Or is it dependent upon 144,000 who make themselves ready so that he can be vindicated from a people of every kindred, nation, tongue, you see. It's a body that he desires through whom the gospel can be demonstrated. So people from all different cultures and backgrounds believe the gospel. They overcome, even as Jesus overcame. They receive the prophetic outpouring, and they become the Elijah message to the whole world. It's not just an Elijah here or an Enoch there that triggers this. So yes, the Father is the only one that knows when he will come, but the Father has set it up that he doesn't force the issue. He can't force his trial, right? There aren't any other prophetic time periods that are revealed. It ha that's it. The prophecy has to do with the bride making herself ready in Revelation 19. Yeah. That's the way the Father has set it up. Yeah. How much does it take the people to be ready? How much? What? Well, the Elijah message is a shaking message to Laodicea. And it is a message of much more abounding grace, of God's love. And it's going to shake to the very timbers of this church. And Ellen White says that like the prophets of Baal that were slain, you know, at the time of Mount Carmel, we're not going to have any, any literal slaying of leaders that we were thought were bright lights, but they're going to take such an exception to this message of love that they're going to say this is fanaticism this is quirky this is weird and I don't want to have anything to do with it and they themselves will lop off their heads as it were and opt out so what you will have is 144,000 
you know. Does that help to answer your question? Okay. I see that I see them, and you can help me with. I see them as bearing the Elijah message, the prophetic message to the world. You know, Joel talks about your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. You know, so this gift of prophecy is going to be bestowed upon this group of people who humble themselves and repent, and they they are willing to receive the Elijah message, and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them in a mighty way. And they bring power and the love message to the three angels, and it just goes out to all of the world. And I think there are agencies that the Holy Spirit has far beyond human agencies that can cause this thing to go like uh, fire in the stubble. The Lord needs a demonstration like that, you know, so that not one people can say, well, it didn't work for our group, you know. Yeah, right. Well, let's bow our heads and we'll pray together. Dear Father in heaven, we're seeking to study and understand the Elijah message and how it relates, as we're talking tonight specifically, about God being on trial. And uh, let's not fool ourselves. Uh, God is feeling the heat. And he does invite these questions because he doesn't force himself on anybody in this world, and he doesn't force himself even on his own people. Uh, he w desires everyone to be drawn by his love, and so he invites our questions and the issues that we have, and uh, we need to see ourselves here as witnesses that help to vindicate, provide the evidence that vindicates him in his trial. We thank you for the good news that we have studied this evening. It brings great courage to our hearts. And uh, we ask that we might have humble hearts. We desire to turn to you in repentance, to acknowledge our, our sinfulness, our blindness, our carnal nature. Our heart is enmity naturally against you so that if we had lived at any time in history, uh, our attitude about God would have probably would have been the same as our forebearers. And so the attitudes that are perpetuated to this very day regarding your message of love resides in our heart, but they can, it can be conquered by your all-powerful cross of Jesus and by the love that he brought to humanity through it. Our hearts can, alienated hearts can be reconciled to God. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.